Last week, uh, someone asked about, uh, in, in anticipation of talking about councils and stuff like that this week, uh, someone asked, well, how were decisions made before um, the councils happened? Was that you, Josiah, that asked that question? Yeah. Um, so uh, I thought we'd start there, because it's actually a, a very relevant question to what we were talking about, we're going to be talking about. There was really two main ways that people made decisions before um, these big councils that we're going to be discussing. Uh, the main one being um, that leaders in the church did their best to come to biblical conclusions. They studied the Bible. They came to conclusions. And then they communicated as best they could, and the church followed along. The main example of that is the apostles, right? The apostles wrote letters to the churches. Those letters were circulated around. We have some of those letters that have become part of the Bible, but there was lots of them that were not part of the Bible, right? And so they wrote letters, and they, those letters got passed around, read over and over and over again in the context of the, of the various churches, and the people followed the instructions from the letters. Um, so, however, by the end of the first century, of course, all the apostles were dead, most of them as martyrs, and there was no uniform canon, so they didn't have a New Testament to go and look at uh, that was definitive, although it was developing, but it wasn't there yet entirely. Um, there were no clear traditions of common doctrine or creeds or confessions to kind of create these boundaries. So what ended up happening is we had a lot of divergent voices, and I think you started to see that last week as, the, as different uh, leaders, even though they were good for a while, maybe they went a little awry <clears throat> in their theology late in life. Origin would be an example of that, right? So you have these divergent voices that are arising within the church, and uh, various leaders emphasized different beliefs and practices. So you had, you know, controversies that would show, that would show up. Um, and this leadership was, so this leadership was definitely mixed. Some good and true, but some leaders introduced unhelpful or even heretical beliefs into our, into the faith and practice of the church. So that brought about kind of the second way that uh, decisions were made, which actually were councils. Now, they weren't big councils like what we're seeing here, what we're going to talk about today. Um, these are much smaller affairs. An example of that from the Bible would be the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, where the leadership of the church got together in order to be able to decide an important issue. Um, there were at least 12 of these before we get to the Council of Nicaea, which is the first big council that we're going to talk today, talk about today. There may have been lots of others that just aren't recorded in history we know about, but there was at least 12 others. So, so it was really leadership within the church, kind of growing up through the church, uh, and again, that was good and bad, and then these councils were brought together when there was tough issues to decide, both uh, religious and actually, in the end, political, as we'll see. Um, so that's, 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 the, that's basically the best answer to that question, is that it was, it was really these, these, small, these smaller gatherings. But before we, and, and we're going to talk about these four big ones. We're going to talk about uh, Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and uh, uh, Chalcedon. Um, and, but before we get to that, uh, I wanted to spend a few minutes kind of reorienting us to where we are in history, right? So you can see from our orange box, we're kind of in the uh, late 200s up through about 500 AD. That's the, that's the time period that we're going to be discussing today. Um, and uh, really where we're going to start is with the Emperor Constantine. Now we've mentioned him a couple of times already. Uh, and both of the last uh, classes ended with Constantine. So that's where we pick up historic, historically. 
Uh, Constantine was coming to power in, early, in the early 300s. So in 312, um, he was getting ready to come up and, um, and come to power. Can you go to the next slide, please? Um, so as he was coming to power, and uh, he prepared for a battle with the last kind of uh, rival for the, for the Roman throne. Uh, it's a guy named Maxentius. Um, and as he was preparing for that battle, Constantine decided that he was going to pray to the supreme God for victory. So apparently he had heard about Christianity somewhere along the way, and he decided he was going to ask God for help. Um, and according to his account, he had a vision that day of a flaming cross that hovered up in the sky, emblazoned with the words, conquer by this. And that night when he was asleep, he had a dream. Um, Christ appeared to him in that dream as he slept and showed him the sign of the Cairo as, quote, as a safeguard in all engagements with his enemies. Now you can see a version of the Cairo up here on the screen. It's the, fir- it's the first two Greek letters of Jesus' name. So Chi uh, and Rho, they're Greek letters. They're laid over the top of each other. Uh, and this symbol, be- this became a symbol of Christianity for a long time. In fact, uh, some of the some of the, the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox churches still use it regularly uh, as a symbol, especially a symbol of within the church. Um, so after after Constantine woke up from that dream, he went to the to met met Maxentius's army at the Milvian Bridge outside of Rome, and Maxentius's army was completely routed. Uh, uh, Constantine took him captive and killed him. Um, and because of that, um, uh, Constantine vowed to, uh, to follow this god who had helped him win the battle. Um, a year after that, in 313 AD, uh, Constantine issued the Edict of Milan. Some of you may remember that from history class. The Edict of Milan declared that Christians had the right to worship on their own within the Roman Empire. Uh, restored churches and property to, to the church. That those were things that were lost under various persecutions in the past. Uh, and he also permitted Christians to serve openly within the Roman government. Uh, his advocacy was a great relief to the church because the church had been under severe persecution. But, uh, as is the case with many political leaders who are also kind, kind of uh, follow, trying to follow Christ in some sense, they don't always do it very well, uh, Constantine did not fully understand the doctrines of Christianity, much less their implications on his own life, and he seems to have embraced the faith as much for political benefit as out of genuine conviction. Um, while he did not permit his own image to be worshipped in the temple any longer, uh, he still a- allowed the imperial cult to remain. The imperial cult is that religion that regarded the emperor as a god. Uh, he still allowed that to remain and continued to practice some pagan rites himself. He also maintained images of pagan deities on all the coins uh, for more than a decade after he supposedly came to faith. And most notably, uh, that was his personal favorite, which is the sun. So a lot of his coins had the sun, which he probably associated with Jesus in some, in some way. Uh, theologically speaking, he remained confused. Uh, he flip-flopped between Arianism, which is a, a thing we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes, and orthodoxy. Uh, more based on which side seemed to hold sway at the moment. He didn't, it, was, it wasn't really convictionally based. It was really based on who, who seemed, what was most advantageous to him as to which one of those two paths he followed. Um, that was true uh, for, for the rest of his rule. He died in 337, 
And then there was a succession of emperors who kind of did the same thing. They would waffle between orthodoxy, Arianism, outright paganism, all for the rest of the, for the, rest of the 300s. And at the end of the 300s, we have Emperor Theodosius I, uh, who, ordered the, who finally ordered the destruction of all the pagan temples and made Christianity the official state religion of Rome. So, it was, so Constantine kicked it off, but it wasn't until the end of the century that we really have Christianity being the official state religion. Uh, Constantine left a mixed legacy for the church. Uh, besides the relief he granted to Christians from persecution, uh, he gave the faith a status and respect it had never had before. Um, he also used his power and prestige to help so- settle church disputes, such as convening the monumental church council at Nicaea in 325. But his, em- his efforts to harness the power of Christ and the service of Rome laid a harmful foundation for the belief that the secular ruler is the head of the church as well. So Constantine even saw himself as the 13th apostle, if you will. So uh, the emperor's official endorsement cleared the way for belief in Christ to become more a means of political advancement than a matter of faith and repentance. So Christianity became the cultural norm by the end of the century, and the church became confused with the world. All of that started with Constantine and the way he approached Christianity. Many pagan practices began to infiltrate Christian worship during this time, leading to practices such as the veneration of Mary and the saints. Uh, and Christians at times became the, pros- uh, the persecutors rather than the persecuted. So the roles kind of flipped here. Uh, for example, when the pagan cult was outlawed, Roman officials banned pagans from the army and even sentenced people to death for not- who denied the Trinity uh, or who repeated baptism. Um, those were things that were worthy of being killed uh, under this, you know, in this late 300s, early 400s kind of time frame. So you can see that kind of got flipped, and that's an example of how uh, things got confused and moved away from true faith being the, the gear, the the um, uh, the main the main central idea, as opposed to political gain. Uh, questions there. That's the kind of the political context of where where we are in this in this section. Uh, not yes and no. Remember that it, that uh, Judaism um, was in trouble during this time because in 70 AD you have the destruction of the temple, right? And so Judaism at that point was very scattered. As far as I know, its overall view within the empire didn't change, but of course, without that central uh, place of the temple in Jerusalem, uh, the the Jewish faith definitely became much more scattered and less focused. So, um, good question. All right. Well, there's a couple of other guys that we need to talk about before we uh, move on to the councils. Can you go to the next slide, please? Um, There's three guys in particular that were leaders during the fourth century that merit our attention. The first guy you see up here, a statue of, um, is Ambrose, uh, the Bishop of Milan. He was a well-educated and refined man of Rome who attained great influence with the Roman government. At one point, he successfully squelched an effort by the Roman Empress Justina. I don't know which emperor she was the wife of. But she was trying to bring Arian worship, again, we'll talk about Arianism in a minute, uh, into the church, and Ambrose opposed her, um, and successfully. Um, Later in life, he became a close person to Emperor Theodosius. 
he'll come up again. Um, and uh, so Christianity had come a long way in three centuries, and Ambrose is really the first example of that. Uh, he actually had clout with the emperor um, in significant kinds of ways. Uh, after the Arian bishop of Milan died, a spontaneous outpouring of support from the people elected Ambrose to that position, very powerful position within the church. This is an early example of congregationalism, if you will, where the people were rising up and helping to get rid of uh, an Arian who was in that place and putting in place instead somebody who was faithful to the gospel. Uh, Perhaps Ambrose's greatest legacy, however, was he was the mentor to Augustine. We'll talk about it in in just a minute. Um, Second guy you'll see here in the middle. It's not a very very clear picture on this screen, but uh, is is Jerome. Jerome, who lived in Antioch, was a cantankerous and combative man, but also, but very faithful to the scriptures. He fervently de- denounced heretics and fellow believers alike. His pro- but his main contribution to, to Christian history, though, uh, is that in 374, while serving as secretary to the Pope at the time, uh, the Pope commissioned him to translate the Bible into Latin. And the Latin Vulgate is the main output of Jerome's ministry. He translated that. That's the, that was the, um, the Bible that the church used, the Latin translation that the church used all throughout the Middle Ages. Um, Jerome also wrote commentaries on most of the Bible and was a renowned exegete and teacher. Uh, he regarded the Christianized Rome as the divine agency, though, so when Rome fell, his, de- his faith was deeply shaken because he saw Christianity overtaking Rome and becoming the official state religion as the end-all and be-all of, of Christian history and that everything was going to get better from there. And then when Rome fell, he was, he was deeply, deeply shaken. Uh, however, the most essential and important of the fathers was Augustine of Hippo. You'll see him, a statue of him over there on the, on the far left. Um, he was certainly the sharpest Christian mind of his day and possibly one of the greatest minds in, in, the, in the church of history. Theology, political philosophy, and ethics have all been significantly shaped by his thoughts and writings. He was born in 354 in a small town in what is now Algeria. Uh, his young years were wild and sinful, even fathering an illegitimate son by his concubine. After years of philosophical questioning and spiritual searching, they eventually, he eventually was led to an overwhelming conviction of his own sin. This culminated in a dramatic conversion, which he described in his Confessions, which is a, a very famous book that he wrote. He wrote this at, while it, in the, kind of in the midst of that conversion experience. He wrote, I was saying these things and weeping in the most contrition of my heart when suddenly I heard the voice of a boy or girl, I know not which, coming from the neighboring house chanting over and over again, pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. So I quickly returned to the bench, for there I had put down the apostle's book when I had left there. I snatched it up, opened it, and in the silence read the paragraph on which my eyes first fell. Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. I wanted to read nor, no further, nor did I need to. For instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty, and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. After coming to faith, he studied under Ambrose, from whom he learned the philosophical truths of the faith, and then he assumed pastoral duties as Bishop of Hippo in North Africa. 
Augustine immersed himself there in the theological and philosophical debates of the day. But at his core, Augustine was a pastor. So this was no white tower uh, uh, effort to understand philosophy. Uh, He saw the consequences of false teachings and errors in the daily lives of those under his care and strove to address these things biblically. He fought against many heresies, Manichaeanism, Donatism, and Pelagianism are of most note, and contributed significantly to the topics of the Trinity, just war theory, and how God sovereignly works through history. Can you go to the next slide, please? Augustine's most fierce and famous dispute was against Pelagianism. Pelagius was a Greek whose followers spread his teaching throughout North Africa. Pelagians denied original sin, taught that humans are born basically good and through enough effort can attain perfection. And it followed since we are not true sinners, we do not need a true savior. And so Christ did not die as a perfect substitute in our place, but merely set a good moral example for us to follow. And though this heresy is ancient, it persists to this day. Modern examples of Pelagianism might include some varieties of liberal Protestantism, especially those that follow the teachings of Charles Finney, uh, the health and wealth gospel. Mormonism is an example, along with Christian science, among others. In responding to the Pelagian heresy, Augustine relied on scripture and his own experience as a sinner in rebellion against God uh, to, to fuel his, his debate. He contended that not only was every human being born sinful as a son or daughter of Adam, but that we invariably choose to sin. And and through our own effort, we could do nothing to save ourselves. Rather, only through God's initiative and graciously choosing to give us the gift of faith in Christ could we repent of sins and trust in Christ for salvation. After, After settling or debating a lot with Pelagius and the, the faith against Pelagianism, uh, he wrote his masterwork. His masterwork was a book called The City of God, writing in the immediate aftermath of Rome's invasion by the barbarian hordes, so probably around 410 AD. Uh, he responded to pagan critics who blamed Christianity for Rome's fall and to, Christ, and to Christians like Jerome, whose faith had been shaken by their beloved city's demise. Augustine made clear that Christians inhabit two cities— the city on one side, which is our temporal residence on earth, and which is fundamentally based in love of self. And then there's the city of God, which is our eternal home, and which is based on the love of God. In this life, we inhabit both cities and must be good citizens of both cities. But we must never confuse the two. God's kingdom was not bound to any earthly kingdom such as Rome. And just as Christians could not achieve their own salvation, neither could they create some kind of eternal paradise here on earth. So that's, that, those are our three guys that are kind of within the church that are our overarching leadership leading up to the time of the councils. <clears throat> so the councils, which we're going to change to and, and start addressing now, um, are the main way that the church settled big, uh, big questions of the faith. Um, early Christians recited simple creeds before, in, before being baptized to affirm common faith and to guard against error. The earliest and well-known of these is the Apostles' Creed, which we can find examples of written down as early as 110 A.D. But doctrinal challenge, challenges soon arose, and the church held four councils during the 4th and 5th centuries to resolve pressing theological and political matters. The most central theme of these councils was the, do, was the doctrine of Christ, 
Christology was the central theme. Uh, And they all discussed uh, various aspects of this doctrine that can be summarized in four basic questions. Is Jesus really God? Is Jesus really human? If If the answer to those is both yes, is he one or two people? And then it, it, that question, are the, the divine and human nature, are they mixed together? Are they distinct? How does that all work? Those are, those are the questions that those four first councils, early councils, were trying to answer. Now, from our vantage point, this can kind of feel like uh, some theological hair splitting. You know, the nature of Christ, is it mixed in this way or is it mixed in that way? But the thing that we need to remember is that we're coming at this way after all this stuff happened, Right? At the time, each, each one of these questions was hashed out in response to a specific challenge and possibly even a heresy in order to be able to resolve what we think about Jesus. And if their answers were different, our faith would look very different today than it does now. So the first council is the Council of Nicaea. Can you go to the next slide? Uh, the council, so this, is, this is just a map showing where the various councils happened. The Council of Nicaea... And the controversy that led up to it began around, in three eight, around 318 when in the city of Alexandria there arose a big dispute. One of the elders there, a man named Arius, who was striving to maintain the absolute supremacy of God, the, God the Father, proposed that Jesus had been created and had not existed eternally and therefore could not be divine. So you can see that's that big question. Is Jesus really God? The bishop over the city, who's a guy named Alexander, and his archdeacon named Athanasius, vehemently opposed this false teaching and defended the Trinity and the Incarnation from this serious error. In 321, a synod, so this would be one of those smaller councils, a synod was called at Alexandria. That synod condemned condemned this Arian doctrine. But Arian, in the end, was a spellbinding orator and a charismatic personality, and succeeded in persuading several of the leading church members of, of his views. Uh, the situation grew steadily worse as this, as this heresy spread, until finally Constantine got involved, realizing the importance of the issue, and he exercised his authority as the head of the church to call an empire-wide council in Nicaea, which is in northwest Asia Minor, to decide the issue. Constantine himself was, was actually sympathetic to Arianism, and was more concerned with preserving cultural and political unity than with theological orthodoxy. But Alexander and Athanasius vigorously defended the, the God, God the Son as being of the same substance, that's an important phrase in theology, of the same substance as God the Father, and succeeded in persuading almost the entire council and the emperor of this truth. Arius himself was deposed and excommunicated, and the council adopted the Nicene Creed, that stands today as an orthodox statement of Christian belief. Now, Athanasius based his defense of orthodoxy on three grounds. First, he he relied entirely on the truth of Scripture. There are many, many, many passages that clearly teach that Jesus is fully God. Second, he, he leaned a lot on the logic of salvation. In order for Christ to atone for our sins and mediate between God and man, he had to be fully divine, or else there was no way for his sacrifice to be worth enough to pay for sin. And then thirdly, uh, he had the experience and support of many common Christians. Ordinary believers had been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and had prayed to Christ for years. And many of them supported Athanasius for these new teachings that Arius was bringing 
struck them as muddle-headed and wrong. Now here again we see an early example of congregationalism as the lay people resisted heresy that was promoted by their leaders and defended the faith. As one Christian scholar noted, Arius' appeal to what he the logic of monotheism illustrates a recurring tendency throughout Christian history to sub- subject the facts of divine revelation to the current conceptions of, quote, the reasonable. Now, like Pelagianism, Arianism also persists in various forms even today. A good example of them would be the Jehovah's Witnesses. They would be Arian. They do not believe that Jesus is actually God. Uh, so, the, and there are others, other examples as well that hold to this false teaching. Okay, second council, Council of Constantinople. So that was uh, 324 was, was uh, Nicaea, 381 was the Council of Constantinople. After Constantine died, the Nicene consensus began to unravel. Nicaea, at Nicaea, many have affir- affirmed Christ as fully God, but new gr- groups of heretical theologians began to make some mischief. One cabal, led by Apollinarius, and known, as you might guess, as the Apollinarians, denied that Christ had a human soul. So they switched from God, Jesus being God and started to attack the idea that Jesus was human. So he didn't, they, according to them, he did not have a human soul, pressing the second big question of Christ's humanity. Another group at this same time, called the, let's see if I can get this right, the Pneumatomachians, or fighters against the Spirit, they denied the full divinity of the Holy Spirit. So those were two, the two kind of theological strains that were being discussed at the Council of Constantinople. So in 381, that council rejected both of these heresies, affirming the full deity of all three persons of the Trinity, as well as the full humanity of, of Jesus. This council slightly modified the Nicene Creed, but overall affirmed it. Uh, and gave us the version of that creed that we, can, that we would confess today. Constantinople also marked the final death of Arianism as a mainstream movement. Although it had been formally rejected at Nicaea, Arian, Arianism had not been fully expunged from the church. Athanasius, for example, found, him ex, found himself exiled no fewer than five times after Nicaea. As the imperial office seesawed from Christian to non-Christian to Arian and back to Christian again. In some ways, the Arian dispute touched also on the relationship of church and state. So Arian emperors and their followers usually favored direct government control over the church, whereas Orthodox believers and Orthodox emperors favored uh, uh, Christians. They tended to believe that the church needed to have autonomy, uh, particularly in spiritual matters. An example of this goes back to Ambrose, who we talked about a minute ago, Um, he, this is a powerful, there is a powerful illustration of this when he refused communion to Emperor Theodosius until Theodosius confe- confessed and repented of a particular sin. So that's an example of that autonomy that the church wanted to maintain when it was being orthodox. Okay, so that's our second, second council. Third council was the council of Ephesus. Ephesus was in 431. Um, and... With Jesus' full divinity and full humanity established by the two previous councils, many thought that lasting peace could finally come to the church. This hope proved to be empty. Um, If Jesus was both God and man, then how are these two elements related to each other? Essentially, is he one person or two? Was the question. This question proved especially vexing to the eastern portion of the church, mainly because during this time the west was preoccupied with fending off barbarian invasion. 
It's also true, though, that the West did not share the East's fondness for a philosophical speculation. So that was really where a lot of the thinking was being done, is in the East at this time. Though, and these questions, although technical, were really of vital importance. Two schools of thought uh, emerged in the East, centered on two different cities, and divided as much by intellectual disagreement as by political rivalry. One group centered in Antioch, Uh, and desired to preserve the human nature of Jesus by completely separating it from his divine nature. They held that these two natures were only loosely connected within the person of Jesus Christ. The other group situated in Alexandria held the opposite position and emphasized Jesus' divinity, sometimes even to the extent of diminishing his human nature. They both held that he was divine and God. Let's be clear about that. They were just kind of figuring out how these two things related to one another, and was he one person or two. So in 428, a man named Nestorius became bishop of Constantinople. He was raised under this Antiochian view, with, with the two natures being separate. And he declared that in Jesus, there were two natures and two persons, one divine and one human. He could not bring himself to believe that the divine had either been born or crucified. Uh, His opponent in this was a guy named Cyril. He was the bishop of Alexandria, and he accused Nestorius of of heresy. Cyril wanted to maintain a strict unity of Christ's nature rather than creating the duality that Nestorius had proposed. He wrote that if Nestorius was right and the two natures of Christ were strictly separated, then it was only the human nature that had suffered and died, and a mere human could never, never accomplish redemption. So the emperor at the time in 431 called the bishops of the emperor to assemble an emphasis to decide this question. It was a bitter and contentious meeting. This was not a fun council. Uh, both sides excommunicated everybody on the other side. Uh, and in the end, the emperor had to come in and settle the matter. He completely undid all of the excommunications, and uh, theologically, he sided more with the Alexandrians, which was also what we would consider to be the orthodox, the more orthodox position. He banished Nestorius into exile in a monastery and saw to it that the Council of Ephesus affirmed that, quote, Christ possessed two perfect natures in one person, truly, truly God and truly man. So that was the outcome of uh, the, the council at Ephesus. Fourth council, Chalcedon. And this is probably, in my opinion, one of the most important here. Nicaea and and Chalcedon are kind of neck and neck for for the most important of these in terms of the the weight of their conclusions. So the the resolution at Ephesus was messy. I mean, you had the church excommunicating each other, the emperor coming in and making the final decision on stuff. It was really messy and really not a resolution at all. Uh, Ephesus did affirm the two natures of Christ, but there was this difficult fourth question of how to describe the relationship that still remained. So just a few years later, the controversy flared again. In 466, a monk in Constantinople named Eutyches began to argue that before Christ's incarnation, he had two natures. But after he was born, these two natures were thoroughly blended, the human nature being dissolved into the divine, and this is the way he put it, much as a drop of wine is dissolved into the sea. Therefore, uh, the nature of Jesus, therefore, was neither perfectly divine nor perfectly human. So Emperor Theodosius learned of this latest controversy in the East and called a council in 449 to settle the question. Um, Dioscorus, the bishop of Alexandria at the time, who supported this guy Eutyches, 
Uh, he paid the emperor off large amounts of gold, maneuvered his supporters to guarantee that their views would, pr- would prevail at the council. Uh, they wouldn't even le- listen to the letter sent by Leo, who is the leader of the opposing viewpoint. He was the bishop of Rome, uh, he, and he defended the orthodox view of Christ's two natures. Instead, these corrupt officials declared that the orthodox view was heretical and banished anyone who held it from leadership within the church. Now, in one of those bizarre and yet providential turns of history, a clumsy horse helped, stu- helped settle the debate. The next year, the horse that em- a horse that Emperor Theodosius was riding stumbled. The emperor fell and broke his neck. The new emperor who came into power affirmed the orthodox view of Christ and immediately called for a new council at Chalcedon across the river from Constantinople in 451 in order to right this wrong. This time, Leo, Leo who was this, this bishop that was in, char- in leading the, the uh, orthodox uh, position the last time, he was still, uh, the, still the bishop, and his position was accepted by the council. He declared Christ to be a single person, perfect in Godhead and perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, in two natures, inconfusedly, immutably, indivisibly, inseparably. Moreover, he was helpful in connecting this doctrine with Christ's saving work. Listen to this quote from his writings. Christ came so that death might be conquered and so that the devil, who once exercised death's sovereignty, might by its power be destroyed. For we would not be able to overcome the author of sin and death unless he whom sin could not stain nor death could not hold took on our nature and made it his own. You have the next slide, please. So Chalcedon affirmed an orthodox Christianity. Listen, to, listen as I read the creed that they produced. It's on, the back if you want to, it's on the back of your handout if you want to follow along. And consider how it summarizes and guards the doctrine of Christ from errors. And I kind of put the map up on the screen here. The big questions in the map. All of these elements are contained within this creed. Listen as I read. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers... We all, with one accord, teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us. There's that one substance language again that's so important. Of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before all ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, the one and same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and substance, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from the earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. One of the reasons that so many of the early church figures fell into error was that they tried to go beyond what scripture has revealed and how we can describe Christ. There is a certain sense in which what we just read is a little bit unsatisfying. 
And that's because Chalcedon did a really good job of threading the needle about saying what they could say and not saying what they couldn't. So the Lord used this council at Chalcedon to reject these various errors, affirm a biblical view of Christ, and establish barriers preventing us from speculating beyond the biblical view. But Chalcedon revealed a growing divide in the church as well. Much of the East did come to accept Chalcedonian theology, but the East also came to resent the West's assertion of authority in Chalcedon. The West completely dominated this culture, this, this uh, council in the end. And the, and the East um, had some theological differences still. We haven't covered a lot of those, but those were all in the mix here with the conclusion of this council. And while the, the official split between East and West would not happen for another six, 600 years, the, the seeds of it were already sown at this point. You already can start starting to see the two sides of the church separating. So in our second class, we kind of saw how the church survived persecution. And we asked whether it could survive acceptance. Acceptance brought a new set of challenges, challenges of internal confusion about doctrine, internal challenges that were political in nature even, but it also brought new opportunities. And as as the faith continued to grow, the church also clarified what it did and what and did not believe. And these were not, again, these were not just esoteric theological disputes. For in many of these cases, the questions about Christ's nature were crafted in response to specific heresies, were related, and they were related directly to doctrines that we hold uh, today. Trinity, who is Jesus, the nature of salvation are all tied up and connected to who is Jesus himself. Is he really God? Is he really man? How are these natures together or not together? And those, so they're real, they really are important questions to answer. So here again, we see the Lord faithfully preserving his church amongst all sorts of challenges and from all sorts of errors. And we can also see the supreme importance of the Bible as the final authority governing our church and our lives. Questions from you guys? We've got a couple minutes. Anything that, that comes to your mind that is confusing about the, the period of history? Um, questions about the theology that they were working through? DJ. Mm-hmm. That's right. Absolutely right. No. Uh that Christ became man at the Incarnation, that certainly would be true. I don't remember. BJ, do you know if that was specifically at issue at Chalcedon? I don't think it was. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure whether that particular question was, was in view. They certainly were, were resolving that he was definitively, uh, had a human nature. You heard it in one of the quotes that there was some idea, of course this is on the heretical side, that, that Jesus had two natures before he was born, right? And it wasn't until after. That might be the source of your question. I don't know whether they were specifically discussing that here or not, though. Yeah. Anyone else? Well, great. Let me go ahead and close this for, uh, in a word of prayer. Obviously, if you have other questions, feel free to send them to me. You can talk to me afterwards. I'll do my best to answer whatever I can. Father in heaven, we are so grateful again for the fact that your church is a historical church and that we can look back and 
have confidence in what we believe because we can see how carefully it was hashed out and through all the perils which this doctrine has come to us uh, over time. Uh, Lord, we're also thankful for the fact that you have indeed preserved a people for yourself. Uh, it seems clear to me from all these challenges and the con- even in the contentiousness of, of councils that uh, we believe were entirely necessary and settled important questions, but yet they were filled with sin and filled with contention, and yet you brought your gospel and your people and your church through every single one of them safe and sound. And Lord, let us take comfort in that, that no matter what challenges come in our future, that you will bring your people through safe and sound to the final day. We thank you for, for all that you have given. We thank you for our worship service that's coming up. May you bless it to our hearts and to our minds. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.